Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a cloudy day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Paul Walker. Paul is a director at Walker Slater Limited, a contemporary tweed tailoring specialist based in Edinburgh, Scotland. Paul, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. It's nice to be here. It's um, wonderful having you um, on as well, Paul. Now, first and foremost, the purpose of this podcast is to gather your take on leadership. So what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? Leader, yeah, that's a, it's a funny one because often it's something without a title. Yeah, leader, for me, is about trying to build people around you to become leaders with you uh, so that you're you're really putting together a team of people that can make decisions and uh, go forward and, and make those happen in the in the workplace. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because being a leader isn't necessarily about just taking decisions yourself, but it's also about getting other people to kind of take on their own sort of form of leadership in a way, isn't it? To be independent and be self-motivated very, very and also much, yeah. show those qualities. Yeah, and the other thing is, I think, you know, when you are a leader, you have to have fairly broad experience over so many different fields which means that you're not going to become an expert in many of them. <laughs> so you have a good overview uh, of it. But the one thing that you can really take forward is is, is the development of people and, and seeing how they, they themselves become much better at what they do within the fields they choose to do, or obviously the, you know, the ones that you, you'd like them to work within. Mm. So the purpose of a leader on one hand is to inspire people, isn't it, if we think of it that way. Um, are there any individuals uh, perhaps that you've encountered in your career, Paul, that have maybe been an inspiration to you as well? Yeah, there are. There are. Uh, you know, we have inspirations in all areas, particularly in fashion. I mean, you know, Ralph Lauren is a, is a big one, uh, Paul Smith. Uh, then, you know, there are in other areas that, Sporting heroes. Uh, I think that musicians, through what they produce, are inspiring. I mean, whether they're leaders or not is a different matter. I, you know, I think that it's it's being able to have a general overview of you know, people that you admire, and that could be you know, somebody like Springsteen, or it could be an artist, uh, or it could be a business leader as well. And there are business leaders that are pretty inspirational. I would certainly agree with that. And um, do you think that good and effective leadership is actually as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Because I think um, when we see people in the public eye, of course, are recognised for their um, accomplishments, of course, that's very positive. But especially in a business context, sometimes good and effective leadership can go under the radar a little, can't it? It can, because it's not it's not necessarily known by lots of people. I mean, you know, I can, I can name names of, of leaders I consider to be pretty, I mean, Jim Ratcliffe, uh, you know, very inspirational, but not many people know that much about him or, you know, and it, it's, I think it's just the nature of the society that we live in. We're not quite as celebrity driven when it comes to leaders as we are with, as opposed to people that are doing, you know, perhaps more, you know, the social media stars of Instagram or, you know, reality TV, there's, there's a lot of that that goes on that passes me by because I'm not really involved in that world. So. 
I can understand that as well. It's uh, something that also kind of passes me by in the same way as well, Paul. Um, on the topic of great leaders, um, one thing that I did want to ask is, um, do you think that great leaders are born with innate qualities that make them a great leader? Or can you pick those sorts of qualities up as you develop through your career? Oh, I think definitely you pick them up. I think talent is, you know, is a combination of hard work and determination. It's the, you know, you'll have an aptitude for certain areas that you'll be better at than others. But undoubtedly, I think one of the qualities is, is the tenacity to keep going when things aren't so easy. Mm, absolutely. And um, you've, of course, had experience um, launching um, your own business as well, co-founding Orcus Later way back in the uh, the late 80s. Did you know quite early on in your career that you would be taking on a leadership position of your own and launching your own business? Yeah, I think so. I think you have to take that on board. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. But at the same time, in those days, you know, you were really only leading yourself and your partner, you know, so, uh, you know, as it's got bigger, the the team gets bigger and the challenges are different, you know, but uh, they're, they're still there. Absolutely. And um, of course, with a greater team, there comes um, a greater number of perspectives. And also with that comes friction and the possibility for conflict as well. Is there any periods of time where you've had to deal with conflict in the uh, the workplace and sort of take a pragmatic approach to that? Yes, very much. I mean, maybe five, five years ago, we went through a big change, you know, in the sense that we lost pretty much all of our senior management. We, I lost pretty much all of our senior management. We then put in place a new set of senior management, and you know, it 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 it, it moved forward from there. So uh, it it happens, and I think sometimes people are on the journey with you for a for a period of time, and then it's you know their choice usually from my side. I'm not one that's I'm quite sanguine like that. I don't like to push too much, but. I think people realise the direction you're going in and sometimes they're just not comfortable with it. I can completely understand that, of course. Um, there is conflict and sometimes that has to be resolved with a parting of the ways. But also, quite notably, the business has gone through, um, well, is going through one crisis at the moment with, of course, COVID-19, but it has also passed through the 2008 financial crash as well. And they're two very, very different learning curves that have been there for business leaders. What sorts of things have you learned from both that experience 12 years ago and also in navigating COVID-19 now? Yeah, 12 years ago, I mean, we were a lot smaller and I think we were probably less exposed in the sense that, you know, we were still a bit of a niche. I mean, niches can be comfortable, but they're also dangerous. So, you know, I think the recognition from the 2008 was to broaden it out a bit and to enable us to talk to a wider selection of people, customers, which which we've certainly done because we've introduced, you know, different clothing from, from the knitwear to the chinos, the shirts, the accessories, accessories became a massive part of our business, which previously it wasn't. Uh, this one, though, is very different because it's it's just a it's a standstill. It, it's something that nobody's experienced, and especially as a retailer, because you know our overheads aren't going away. I mean, all right, we might get a rent holiday, but we're still going to be due that money. You know, we maybe have a VAT holiday, but we're still going to be due that money. So, you know, it it is tricky, and and the the most difficult thing is knowing what it's going to look like on the other side, because I think you know anybody who thinks it's just going to pick up where it left off is probably you know in for an awakening. I don't think it will. 
And it links back to uh, the key I word, doesn't it? Innovating um, and business is having to innovate to be able to seize upon the opportunities that will be there when this inevitably does subside, because it is going to be a changing business landscape and the way that we do business is fundamentally going to be different. Well, we're very much into sustainability. We're into quality. We're into value. I think that, you know, we're not a fast fashion company, uh, and we're not looking at, you know, our customers keep their items for a long time. You know, in the early days, it was almost like they'd buy the suit at the same time as buying the house. You know, it was one suit. <laughs> now it's, of course, it's a, hopefully it'll be a bit, uh, you know, people have more than one. But, uh, you know, the clothing that we that we design and that we make is very much aimed at, you know, lasting that, that client for quite some time. And that's um, really interesting as well. And um, if we do think about, of course, um, the future as well, before we do go about uh, wrapping things up, Paul, um, do tell me over the next 12 months what you envision the business achieving and what you really hope to accomplish in that time as well, especially navigating the pandemic and then coming out of the other side of that. Well, obviously, liquidity is important. I mean, we are liquid to an extent, but the you know, we've just opened a much larger store in Covent Garden, which is the men's store. And actually, it's doubled our footprint because we retained the other Covent Garden store, which has now become the ladies' store. So we have, like we do in Edinburgh, we have one store for men's and one store for ladies in the same street. So in, in London, we're in Great Queen Street, uh, Edinburgh, Victoria Street. Now, we also have the Glasgow store and we have a little store in Tokyo, which is rolling along quite nicely. Mm. But the area that we're going to be expanding in terms of really putting a close eye on is the warehousing. I hope to move the warehousing. We're looking to treble the size of our warehouse, which is a big thing because we've been operating at capacity for quite some time in the warehouse. And anybody who knows anything about warehouses knows that at least you do not want to be at capacity. It doesn't give you any room for maneuver. So, you know, that then turns into the online business. We are increasing our online business and investing in, you know, better photography, uh, different platforming. You know, we're trying to do a lot of organic, uh, you know, SEO and we'll continue to work, work on that. Absolutely. And um, if you were to give any advice to uh, somebody who were about to start their first day in a leadership position and were having to sort of navigate this crisis as well, it, it, the advice would be to be ambitious, wouldn't it? And to think about the long term, even though there is so much uncertainty there. I think it's, yeah, to remain focused on delivering quality and value. You know, that's your people as well. You know, just do things that, that, that are real, that feel real and, and have some, you know, real consequences, that are positive ones, you know. And I think that's very, very sound advice indeed, Paul. Um, I have to say, it's been a really insightful experience and also an absolute pleasure having you on uh, today's programme. And what I think for the listeners would be fantastic in future is to maybe revisit this in a few months and have you back on the air just to discuss how the business has been doing in the uh, the months and weeks to come. But thank yeah, you so much. For, absolutely. And um, I have to say, I've really enjoyed uh, today's interview and thank you so much for taking the time to come on and well, speak with me today. Appreciate it. Fantastic, Paul. It's been an absolute okay, pleasure. Curious. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, 
Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up 
doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, f I think it was in, final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty 
major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, freshly school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no how it played out i've never seen anything i've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life and for it to be the world cup final was quite extraordinary i know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because i yeah well so <laughs> was, was i yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now in your in your wife's memory you established the ruth strauss foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in december uh, 2018 uh, i came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah. Well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.